Oh, good evening, everybody. It's me, Graham, and uh, hello to everyone watching online. I hope there's uh, plenty of Jamboree Anglican Church types, and some of our regular friends online too. Some, I, some of you whom I've met, and some of whom probably haven't met. And it's good to have all of you with us. And uh, for our uh, Bible talk uh, tonight, we've got uh, why did God become a man? So I thought that might be kind of topical enough and relevant enough just for the moment. Why did God become a man? There we go. Uh, I'll, I've got my own little button now. Yep, that's your go- I'm up to date there. I'll, I'll do my own from here then. Thanks very much. So, uh, this question's been around for a long time. Well, it's, it's in the Bible, really, because the Bible doesn't quite ask this question straight out the way that we might today in having discussions or whatever. But the question certainly goes back to the Bible. But there was a, a guy who wrote... A famous book. Back, uh, this, is, this book goes back a thousand years. So it's in Latin. You'll have to excuse the Latin that he, he wrote it in, but that's what they did in those days. You wouldn't, wouldn't write anything simple like English that people could understand. Anyway, Cur Deus Homo, why did God become a man? Uh, and this guy was a guy called An- Anselm. He just how it happened. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he was born about a thousand years ago. And uh, in those days... Uh, there's no printing press that hadn't been invented for a couple of hundred years, so they write all the books out by hand with the beautiful illuminated first letters and so on, and, and so there's still some copies around. Now it seems to be uh, back to front. Uh, God becoming a human. Uh, it's us, we humans, us humans, are we humans, sort of reaching up for God. Uh, other great religions of the world teach people how to rise up to God by whatever methods they're actually advocating. So uh, the Mormon sect, for instance, positively teaches their people that when they die, they will become gods and travel around the planets and so on and that kind of thing. But in Christianity, it's the other way around. God descended to earth. Now, last week um, in our talk, we had the angel Gabriel and the two babies, John and Jesus, mainly John, because that's where it was the starting point, although Jesus, of course, got a, got a reference. And this week, I thought we might try having some more precise information on why the Son of God had to become a man, why Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. So we see uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and we had the passage read out. I won't go through every verse, but I'm kind of following the thoughts of that passage through and making reference to verse as we go along. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. And the verse says it was only right to have the one who brings us to God having the same origin as we do. Our leader in life and death is another human being, is one of us. So the first point in the sermon is it was only right, and we see this in verse 10. Now our whole passage explains how it was right for God to make our leader perfect through suffering. Now there's many places in the Bible where we can see that something is right for God to do, where people call on God, please do this, God, because we know the sort of God you are, so will you act in this way? So 
God always acts in accordance with his character. God's character is loving and faithful. So God always shows his love and faithfulness. So we, we get that point. It happens in the Old Testament and so on. But here uh, in Hebrews, this is the only place in the Bible where it uses this small word saying it's right for God. They're the only time this word occurs in our Bible. The older translations that some of the older ones are familiar with said it was fitting uh, for God to do this. It was right. Now, uh, it's good for us sometimes to focus on individual words in the Bible. I hope it's not tedious for you because the Bible is the word of God and this surely means that each individual word in the Bible is inspired by God, that it, it comes to us written just as God wanted it. So this is the right way, and he wanted to say it in this particular point, the right way for God to bring his children to salvation, the way that fitted the situation perfectly, was to make the Saviour and those who are being saved of one and the same stock. So the Son of God became a man. In verse 14 of our passage it says that Christ shared with us in our flesh and blood nature. Now, humans were, of course, created by God for a life of loving relationships. Uh, This with each other and with God. So back in Eden, in the verses of the Bible, we see there was talking between God and Adam and Eve, communication there. There were limits, sure, There were boundaries, don't eat fruit from that tree. But there was that open communication, the man to the woman, they had an open, honest and trusting relationship. This was seen in the going around with no clothes and not being ashamed. There was the humans to the world around them uh, where God blessed them uh, and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. So they had to take care of the world around This was God's world as it was set up by God as it used to be before a huge catastrophe changed it. The man and the woman were not able to withstand the temptation. They ate that forbidden fruit. And now we see as we read through the narrative in Genesis that they no longer trusted in in God. This is seen pictorially as them hiding from God in the bushes they no longer trusted in each other. This is seen in Adam blaming Eve for what went wrong, also wearing fig, tree, uh, fig leaves to hide from each other. And the world around them was going to be hard work from now on, as seen in God calling forth thorns and thistles to make a mess of creation. So it was hard, hard work to take care of it. It would get away from you from time to time. And so we see that Adam and Eve, they lost their garden with the presence of God in it. They lost trust in each other and they lost control of the world around them. And so from God's point of view, if we can kind of think ourselves into his position and do that reverently enough, I trust, there were two options that were clearly open to God. He could, first of all, he could wash his hands and totally ignore us, leaving leaving us to muddle on as best we could in this difficult situation. Or secondly, God could mount a rescue operation to redeem the situation. And of course, as as we know from our reading of our scriptures and the Bible talks and so forth, we know that God chose number two. And God's rescue operation was that the second person of the Trinity became Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph. In the words of our, our, our Bible reading, he became lower 
than the angels for a little while. So we know in the heavenly realm, there's God and the angels, the purely spiritual beings. Then there's the earthly world where those who are lower than the angels uh, dwell, people like us. And Jesus became lower than the angels for a little while. This means he became a human being. He entered the human world in order that he might lead, says our passage, many children to glory. Or, in the Adam and Eve language, uh, take us back to the garden. Uh, Which brings us to point number two. I've lost my screen. I don't know what I'm doing here because I'm pushing a button and the screen's gone dead. It'll be the one. Look at the one up there. Hmm? So, okay, if I can have heading number two made by his brothers in every way, I can just keep on going and we'll redeem the situation as we go along. It was made by his brothers and sisters in every way. This is point number two. So, uh, uh, the Bible says uh, in the next slide, we also know that the Son did not come to help. Yeah, there we go. Did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. And the next slide, therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. Now, I'd like us just to think about uh, the human being called Jesus of Nazareth for a moment. And to help us do that, we've got some pictures here. Source from the internet. Uh, this is not a, not a bad one. Sometimes uh, when I'm doing the sermons, I tr- it's a struggle to find decent pictures on Jesus. You probably think the same way. If you're walking around an art gallery or reading a book of artwork or something, say, so where can I find a decent picture of Jesus, please, without the halo? This one here has a certain sort of fragility and vulnerability to baby Jesus. So the artist has got that bit right. This Jesus as a baby, a real baby, this one. We've also got a picture of Jesus as a child. I like this one. Minus the halo, excellent. Playing. In fact, it's hard to pick exactly which one is meant to be Jesus. I think the artist probably wants us to imagine it's the middle one. But you can see you could just as easily imagine one of those smaller children to be Jesus. And now, Jesus wasn't regarded as an unusual child when he was a kid. Uh, We know this because when he became a grown-up and launched out in the synagogue to preach his first sermon, people could not imagine where he got all this wisdom. Isn't this just Joseph's son? What's he doing tromping out the front of the synagogue and delivering as a sermon? So he was just completely a normal child. If he was living here in Jamboree and walking around in the school next door, you'd look at him and say, well, this is one of the kids at Jamboree. And then, of course, we have Jesus as a man. And there's a, uh, I think that one's a still from a, um, a movie on the life of Jesus. Uh, you can always pick Jesus slightly wider clothes, according to the, uh, the movie makers. But if we wish to claim to be an orthodox Christian, then this is what is taught in the Bible about Christ, that the eternal Son of God, the second person, the Trinity, added human nature to his already divine essence. And was born as Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, true God and true human, joined together in one person. If we can think about humans, I can save myself. I'm a typical human in this regard. I can say, yes, I'm 100% human. I'm pure human. Nothing, well, apart from my false teeth or something, I probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, I'm a pure human being in every way. That kind of thing. But in fact... I do also have a God aspect in me, 
whereby I can recognise that there is a God and I can follow through on this knowledge and I can declare myself to be a believer or I could choose to suppress the knowledge of God so I could choose to become an atheist. I could say, uh, therefore, I can come, oh, there is no God or, as many people might do this, they might say, well, I believe there's a God then I could live my life just ignoring God as if there wasn't a God. So there wouldn't be much difference between the way me and myself and an atheist lived. We would just look the same from that point of view. So Jesus was completely human in that way, like us. He was completely, utterly, 100% real. He went through all the good things in life. His family and his friends are going to celebrations like that wedding he was at sitting at meals with friends at the end of the day, worshipping God his heavenly father, being a rabbi to the 12 disciples, preaching to and healing amongst the crowds. Jesus went through all the good things in life. He was completely human. He went through all the bad things in life. There was the temptations that he went through, the hunger and the cold that he endured. His friends failed him. Rejection and crucifixion for death. So Jesus went through all the good things in life went through all the bad things. He was totally 100% human. And our Bible verse says it was only right that he, God, should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. And it says here he was perfect through his suffering. And if we note carefully the way the writer wrote, he wrote the word sufferings with an S on the end of it, plural, and we can pay attention to the exact wording of the word of God. It's good to do that. It's talking here about what it costs Jesus to be 100% human and to fully trust and obey God. It's his whole life of sufferings, not just the cross, not just feeling bad one day, his whole life of sufferings. It's his life of suffering obedience. It's the many trials of life, the temptations, Jesus being immersed in a fallen world for 33 years. These were Jesus' sufferings in the plural. And the main point of this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 is that this was right for God to do it this way. And it was right for Jesus to do it this way. The older translation said it was fitting to make Jesus through his sufferings a perfect leader. Now let's just pause for a moment because you can see in that verse we've got up on the screen that Jesus was made into a perfect leader. So what does it mean when it says in the Bible that Jesus was made perfect? You might say, hey, I thought Jesus was always sinless, so how could he be made perfect when he was already perfect? A good question. Jesus himself said to his disciples, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the meaning of the word perfect there is some sort of moral righteousness being like God. But... We can't bring this idea straight across to the letter of the Hebrews without getting ourselves boxed in because Jesus was made perfect here in the Hebrews. So it's being used in Hebrews in a slightly different way. And being made perfect means that Jesus, who was 100% pure man, was able to achieve something that the eternal Son of God could not. Jesus, true man as well as true God, was qualified to become our high priest. And he became high priest by the process of becoming perfect, being made perfect step 
by step by step along the way. Now a priest, of course, is a go-between. A priest goes between a human being and God. And as our go-between, we have the man who is also true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a member of the human race, as a man living in the midst of a sinful world, Jesus became perfect little bit by little bit, step by step. As a boy, he had to face up to the realities of sin. He faced the same temptations to steal, to cheat, to tell lies, to hurt people, etc. As an adult, the same temptations kept coming at him. When he was 30 years old, Satan decided to throw just about everything at him. When Jesus was feeling very weak, tired, hungry and thirsty, times when we're very weak and likely to give in, the devil offered lots of good things to alleviate his sufferings. In return, Jesus only had to give up on God's plan to save people. And Jesus replied to Satan, you can read about this in Matthew chapter 4, you probably can recall this incident, Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But Satan kept at him all the way to the cross. Even in his last prayer in the garden, Jesus is obviously under great strain, enormous pressure not to die on the cross, but still Jesus held firm. And this is what it means in Hebrews when it says that Jesus had to be made perfect. It means that Jesus had to be a 100% true human being who rubbed shoulders with all sorts of sinful people, who was given the opportunity by Satan to commit every possible kind of sin, yet Jesus did no wrong. Instead, Jesus said, and this is in verse 13 of our passage, I'll put my trust in him. Whilst dying on the cross, Jesus did keep on trusting God. As even his enemies recognised, they cast insults, insults at him saying, he trusted in God, let God save him if he wants him. So they recognised Jesus' great trust in God. Jesus was given every opportunity to commit a sin, but he never did. And he's therefore qualified to be the human who leads many sons and daughters to glory. And there's one more thing that Jesus did which he needed to do in order to be the one who leads many sons and daughters to glory. It says that only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. To rob the devil of his power over humans, Jesus had to become a man. He lived a human life and he died a human death and as such he came under God's judgment. He was guilty because of our sins. He was consigned to hell and the devil thought he finally had his man but Christ had fully trusted God his Father even at the point of death. When Jesus knew that the Father had abandoned him because he was bearing our sins and he was under God's curse, at that point, what does he cry out? Remember the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit still trusting in God right to the bitter end. He achieved the perfection of having gone through every part of life without sin, of trusting fully in God his Father, of turning away from every temptation, of finally trusting in God when he was at the point of departure into hell. And so God his Heavenly Father raised him up from death 
and he passed safely through the heavens. And by his ascension, he became a perpetual source of salvation since he's now in heaven. So I want to ask you, do you wish to go to heaven? If you do, then you need the go-between. You need someone to lead you there. In short, you must be a follower of Jesus. Without him, you are still subject to the devil who holds you in slavery to him. Jesus himself said, of course, no one comes to God except through me, over in John chapter 14. Thus, the incarnation was a necessary event. God had to become a man. And so we come to our third point. Jesus, the merciful and faithful high priest. Now, as I mentioned before, in any religion, a priest is someone who goes to God uh, on your behalf. Probably why us Sydney Anglicans have preferred to drop the word priest when referring to our ministers, because that's what a priest technically goes to God on your behalf and does things for you with God that you can't do yourself. So in the Jewish religion, the high priest of Jerusalem, uh, we're told in the history books, apparently spent very little time amongst the people of Jerusalem. In fact, the religious aristocracy of Jerusalem were very dismissive of the people of the land. And that's not the sort of priest we've got. We've got the priest who, who got his hands dirty, lived amongst us, showed love and care and sympathy for us and understands us and carries us along the way. Very different to the uh, high priest that he was replacing in Judaism. Uh, most of uh, the Jewish religious aristocracy held Jesus in contempt. As I said, they had no desire to help the people or to recognise the, that the people were searching for a Messiah. But the writer of Hebrews has con contributed a wonderful Christian doctrine, saying that now Jesus has done away with all that and he's the new high priest. Uh, so we read uh, in our Bible passage, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. So there's two quick things are apparent here. First of all, as it says, Jesus makes atonement for the sins of the people. His sacrificial death is, of course, far better than the old sacrifices of sheep and goats, etc. And secondly, we see here that Jesus can help us when we are tempted. Now, this help includes mercy for those who are fallen. You'll have to refer across to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 for that, but that's what it says there. Mercy for those who have fallen. And secondly, he gives us help to withstand temptations. That just as he withstood them, he'll help us to withstand them. The fact that Jesus was fully tempted means that he understands the force of temptations that bear down upon us. Jesus grew in moral and spiritual strength as he faced and overcame the full range of temptations. And we will too, by his help. The fact that Jesus never sinned meant that he felt, he experienced, stronger and stronger temptations coming upon him. As Satan kept on trying to prevail over him with another one and another one. 
So Jesus knows how hard temptations can be and he can help us when we are tempted. So we must look to him, we must pray to him when temptations seek to bring us down. Thus, Jesus the high priest is truly able to help us. We can persevere as Christians, confidently knowing that we will, and we will reach our heavenly destination. So I wonder when you are tempted, do you cry out to the Lord Jesus to help you? His arms are powerful because they came, became strong as he was being perfected to become our high priest. His aim is to take hold of Abraham's descendants, the heirs of God's covenant, and lead them to glory, and he will do it. And this is why God had to become a man.